all these things. We should, um, as we study them. So today we're going to look at Ephesians 1 from verse 11 up until verse 12. Let's read until verse 14. Hear now the words of the living God. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you will open our eyes to see what is really here. I pray that you will help us to see the beauties and the glories of believing in your complete sovereignty of all things. I pray that it won't be a source of anxiety or source of distress but a source of comfort a source of joy a source of security for us as your children that as we look at your sovereignty lord that it will give us hope for our lives and for this world knowing that you one day lord will come and as we read in revelations wipe away every tear from our eyes I pray that we would stand in awe of you and that we would feel small as we really are in comparison to you so that we can worship you with all of our joy and all of our hearts. Please, Lord, be gracious to me even as I preach it, Father. I pray for the right words and I pray that you might fill me with your spirit. I pray for your people and for those here that's listening, Lord, that you will give us a soft heart and a receptive spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lover, the, the verses we just read is one of the clearest verses in the entire Bible regarding the complete and exhaustive sovereignty of God over all things. It is found right there in the middle of verse 11. Did you see it? Right there in the middle it says, He works all things according to the counsel of His will. That is what God's sovereignty means. That God in His infinite wisdom his justice, His holiness, and love is working out all things to bring about His plan, to bring all things in unity to His Son. Verses like these causes many Christians to wonder, and could this even include the bad things? Could verse 11 include the evil and the suffering of our world? But, and if it does, doesn't that make God evil Himself? Doesn't that make God the author of sin? If verse 11 is true at face value, that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. And that usually starts heated debates among fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But what I find so helpful about the way Paul introduces this topic is that he puts it in the context of our blessings. He puts it as a source of our security for our inheritance. In other words, he puts the complete sovereignty of God over all things and he places it underneath our blessing that we will receive an inheritance. Look at verse 11, the beginning. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, 
according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So in other words, for Paul, this is not this topic. This topic of the sovereignty of God over all things is the truth, the attribute which you must cling to to believe the promises of God. It's not mainly for debate. When we debate, we're actually missing a little bit the point of the text. God wants you to have rock solid, never shaking, unbreakable hope for your future and for your eternity that is coming because God is almighty, because he is sovereign, because he works all things. So beloved, yes, these verses can cause you to have some questions and, and we're going to, Lord willing, hopefully try to answer them even in the sermon and in the service, try to answer some of the objections, some of the questions you might have over this text. But don't miss the intended effect it should have on you. Don't miss it. Don't get lost in the woods of debate. Don't get lost in all the what-ifs and lose the power that this text is supposed to give you. Unshakable hope. And we're going to simply look at four observations about God's sovereignty. That will be our outline. God's sovereignty is for our security. God's sovereignty is exhaustive. God's sovereignty is for our good. And God's sovereignty is for His glory. But before we dive into the outline... We have a textual, a textual difficulty in the verse. As you've noticed, like as we have studied Ephesians 1, there's a lot of textual, and I don't know if Paul's on purpose or the Spirit is on purpose to, to try to make it both, but let's, let's look at this textual difficulty. And that is the beginning of verse 11, how to translate it. So in the ESV and most of our translations have translated it as we have obtained an inheritance, meaning... Verse 11 is speaking about the blessing of what we will receive from God as our inheritance. But there is a legitimate second way to translate verse 11. And here's the NET or the NET or YANET, <laughs> the NET translation, right? Translates it like this it says, In Christ, we too have been claimed as God's own possession. Notice, now it's not. We who receive the inheritance, but we are God's inheritance. God claims us. And to be sure, that is what Paul is going to say later in verse 18. Look at verse 18 when he says that he prays for our eyes to be open and enlightened, that you might know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So we're getting to that. That is, that is true that we are also God's inheritance. But what is the meaning in, in this verse? That is what we want to ask. So the verse can be trial either way. And I think the ESV is correct for a couple of textual reasons. So it's going to be a little bit um, uh, technical, but I, I hope it's not too much. So notice in verse 14 that he actually talks about this inheritance, about Jews and Gentiles. So the immediate context points to our inheritance. Look at verse 14, and it says, The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. So the context seems to point into this direction that he's speaking about Jew and Gentile as having a collective um, inheritance. And then these verses have a very close parallel to verses 5 to 6. The very same words are used in verses 5 to 6. Very similar words. Look at verse 5. It says, He predestined. There's the same word in verse 11 as well. He predestined us for adoption to Himself through Je as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Very similar. And verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. Very similar to verse 12. Do you see that? So, Verses 5 and 6 is a very close parallel to verses 11 and 12. 
And there, in verses 5 to 6, we see our, Paul is talking about our adoption. And again, one of the key ideas of being adopted is that we are heirs. We are co-heirs of Christ. We inherit from God our inheritance. Everything that belongs to Jesus, we will get by grace and grace alone. So for those reasons, those couple of textual reasons, I conclude that the ESV is correct. And if you have that translation, uh, trans translation similar to that, then I think it is correct to say we have obtained an inheritance. But let's just pause and think about how amazing our inheritance really is. Let's not miss the, the top part of the verse before we go into the sovereignty of God. Believers in Christ will inherit everything. Everything. A new heaven, a new earth, a new body to enjoy the new creation forever and ever, where every day will be better than the day before. And best of all, we will inherit God himself. God himself is our portion. He himself is our inheritance. He is the great treasure of our hearts. He is the great longing of our hearts. And he is the reason why all the other blessings are good in the first place. All of God's gifts, all of his blessings are like sunbeams. But God is the sun. So every time you enjoy anything, you should, you should learn to trace your eye back to the source and see God for who he really is. Psalm 73 verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 16 verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Nothing is good apart from the Lord. Beloved, this is your destiny. This is where you are going. Eternal joy, eternal peace, eternal happiness. Never ending experiencing the love of God for you. Always, always getting better. It was just yesterday when I drove from the shop and I had some donuts in for Jordan and for me of course and uh, a coke for Deborah and the sun was setting and it was just a very magnificent beautiful sunset and I was driving in my car and I just had this overwhelming flood of feelings of how can my life be this good and I'm going to heaven <laughs> like it, it's already amazing I have an amazing wife children food donuts <laughs> okay put whatever you like to eat or drink in that right you have that god is he gives that to you freely out of the overflow of his heart for you and you're going to heaven it's like it's almost like the lord is too kind too good but that is true if you're a believer he is he lavishes it's all it's more than enough that he gives you and revelation 7 will become true as we read all of the sadness he will wipe away all of the loneliness, all of the depression, all of the pain, all of the sickness, all of the things that can ever cause you harm, God is going to take away forever. So that is our inheritance, Christian. We're going to go there. We are going by God's grace. But how secure is that inheritance? How sure can you be, if you are in Christ, that you are going to make it? Maybe something in the world, maybe you, maybe the devil, maybe demons, 
Is there anything in the world that can stop you from receiving your inheritance? Well, that's exactly why Paul continues by talking about the sovereignty of God. Our first observation is this. God's sovereignty is for our security. God's sovereignty is for our security. Look at how closely Paul just said we have an inheritance, and then immediately he bases that upon the fact that we've been predestined. Look at verse 11. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. Paul says this inheritance is given to us in him, and we have been predestined. So the point is, he connects the two ideas together. He says, this inheritance is something God will surely give to you because you have been predestined for it. Something God cannot undo. He will do that for his people. But notice, Paul doesn't stop there. He could have just said, um, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, verse 12, so that we would be to the praise of his glory. But he goes even deeper. He goes even further in to God's sovereignty. Even our predestination is in accord with something else. This predestination is in accord with the second observation that we're going to look at, that God's sovereignty is exhaustive. So he pushes, it's almost like he pushes deeper into it. God's sovereignty is exhaustive. Look at the rest of the verse. He says, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In fact, you see that the first observation is connected to the second observation. That is why we can be secure is because his sovereignty is exhausted. There's nothing that will creep in unnoticed by God that can suddenly snatch us out of his hand. There's nothing that can rob us that God that is outside of his control. Nothing. That is why we're so secure because of his sovereignty is so exhaustive. That's the good news of the sovereignty. He works all things and that's why you will make it. Christian, nothing in the universe can frustrate his will. Nothing in the universe can frustrate his plans. And if God works all things according to the counsel of his will, then nothing can stop you from receiving your inheritance if you are in Christ. Beloved, we need to come to grips with this verse. Just verse 11. That God works all things means that God is the ultimate reason why anything happens. All things are under his sovereignty. What we need to see immediately is that even God's purposes in history and how he is working all things out is in accord with something else as well. So don't also not stop at he's working all things. It's also in accord with, look, look at verse 11. It says, who works all things, again, according to the counsel of his will. God's plan is in harmony, in accord, in step with the counsel of his will. The word counsel literally means a discussion, right? If you call a council together, to think together, to make the best possible solution to something, that's a council. And God has had a council, so to speak, of the plan of history, how history should be. And it's in accord with the counsel of his will, the counsel of his wisdom and his holiness, So, so this is the key mistake we should never make with the sovereignty of God, is often when we think of the sovereignty of God, we think of it in isolation. 
We just think of him as sovereign. And then we start to doubt his goodness and his love and his mercy, but we forget all the other attributes. He's not just sovereign. He's a sovereign God who is also wise, who's also slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and kind and gracious, who will by no means clear the guilty. You see, so it's almost like his other attributes sweeten the sovereignty of God for us. Without his other attributes, you, you, I don't think you would be able to find his sovereignty sweet. Specifically, one attribute I think we need to cling to specifically is the wisdom of God. God is wise. He knows what he's doing. <laughs> you could say that the wisdom of God is the sweetener of his sovereignty. If you lose his wisdom, you will, you will be confused. You will struggle with this. But remember, it's in accord with the counsel of his will. I love this quote from Jeremiah Burroughs in The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Listen to what he says. Um, he says, The soul that has learned this lesson of contentment looks up to God in all things. He does not look down at the instruments and means so as to say that such a man did it, that it was the unreasonableness of such and such instruments and similar barbarous usage by such and such, but he looks up to God, a contented heart, looks to God's disposal and submits to God's disposal. That is, he sees the wisdom of God in everything. In his submission, he sees his sovereignty, but what makes him take pleasure is God's wisdom. The Lord knows how to order things better than I. The Lord sees further than I do. I only see things at present, but he sees a great while from now. And how do I know but that it had not been for this affliction, I should have been undone. I should have, I know that the love of God may as well stand with an afflicted condition as with a prosperous condition. So again, here you see Jeremiah Burroughs saying the wisdom of God is what sweetens his sovereignty. God is wise. He sees the big picture. He sees everything and he loves us. And this is consistent with the rest of the Bible. Romans 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10. It says, remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. What makes God different? Verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So what makes God God in distinction from idols is the fact that he can tell the future. He knows the end from the beginning and then he calls that exhaustive foreknowledge, what? My counsel, my will, my purposes. It's not just intellectual knowledge of God. It is because it was part of his counsel that it happens. And I, I think this is a logical necessity. If God knew everything that would have happened before he created Adam and Eve, and he still created Adam and Eve, it must mean, it follows, that all things were part of the counsel of his will. Now, again, I just want to clarify, this does not mean that God does everything directly. This is incredibly, incredibly important, right? Job is the best example of this. God said to Satan, go ahead, 
He is in your, in your hands. Just don't just spare his life. And it wasn't God killing his sons, right? It was sinful Satan, sinful men. But yet, that was in God's sovereignty. People all, what people mean for evil, God means for good. So it's important to have that layer. When we see an event, to call on the one level it evil, and on the other level, God will mean it for good. It, both is true. And the greatest example of this is the cross of Christ. Is the cross. Listen to Acts 4, verse 27 to 28. If you could just remember this one verse, I think it will help you with so many objections against this doctrine, confusion of this doctrine, just this one verse, because I, I believe it, it, it captures the essence of it. Listen to the early church praying after they were persecuted. They said this, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Now he mentions different groups. He says both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Whatever happened to Jesus, Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, people, you know, they, all that they did was predestined and planned by God to take place. And I think this one verse is such a key verse. It helps us. Because probably the biggest of, one of the biggest objections against the sovereignty of God is this. If God is this sovereign, even sovereign over evil, then that makes God evil. Right? That would make him evil if he could plan evil, if he could ordain evil, if, he could, if evil could be part of the counsel of his will. That makes God evil. But in this verse, we see an answer to that objection. Now, I want you to follow the logic, the logic here. If it was ever sinful for God to plan evil, to use evil for good, ever, if it's even sinful for God to do that, then he cannot even do it once. Does it make sense? Because if he does it once, he's guilty. He's sinful. But yet here we see that God planned the greatest evil ever committed in the history of mankind. And he is not evil. In fact, it's the greatest display of his goodness, of his mercy and his love, the evil that he planned. Now, do you see how we can now say, so listen, it is true that God plans evil, and at the same time, that does not make God evil. Because he did it with the greatest sin. So can we trust him with the lesser sins, the lesser evils of all of our lives? Yes, we can. And yet, what they did was predestined by God to take place. So, this is helpful, I think. And here's the second objection. The first objection is to say, if God would plan evil, that would make him evil. But here's the second objection. If God is the sovereign, if he truly does work all things according to the counsel of his will, then every, even the details of our lives, then that makes us puppets on a string. Then we lose our freedom. We are worth nothing. Our choices don't mean anything. We are just random parts of the play and we don't matter. And our, our choices doesn't matter. Or our choices doesn't have consequences. Or how could God judge me on all those things, right? So it's part of this big objection against if God is the sovereign, then that makes me unresponsible for my actions. 
again, the same verse, I think, shows us the answer again, right? Was Pilate, so it's just a simple question, when we read the Gospels, when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and see how Jesus was crucified, was Pilate, the Jews, the Pharisees, Herod, all these people, were they free to choose whatever they wanted to do to Jesus? And the answer is obviously yes. We read the Gospels, no one forced them. They didn't suddenly feel a pull of God's sovereignty. Like, Whoa, what's happening to me? Condemned. Oh, wait, that, that wasn't my hand. No, that's not what we see. We see they were completely free and everything that they did, they did willingly to Jesus. No one forced them to do anything. They were not puppets. They were free, responsible creatures. And the reason why they would be judged for what they do is because whatever they did, they did willingly. That's the key word you must remember. Whatever happened to Jesus, whatever we do, whatever we choose to do is always in accord with our nature and our desires. It's a willing choice. And that's why we are guilty for our choices. And at the very same time, although they were completely free to do whatever they wanted to do, whatever they did was predestined by God to do, to take place. Do you see that? So again, it's, this is a, it's, a, it's a common mistake of either or. Either God is sovereign or we are responsible and we see at the cross, it's not true. It's both. What we choose have a real effect on the outcome of our lives. We have a responsibility to be wise and not to be foolish, to, to, to put our sin to death and to follow God. We have that responsibility. And at the very same time, we believe Ephesians 1 verse 11. We believe that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. You might say, but how could both be true? That just doesn't make sense. And excuse me if I've used this illustration a million times, but it's helpful and therefore I'm going to use it again. Okay? And I believe the author illustration is the most helpful for me or personally, the author illustration. So to illustrate, C.S. Lewis wrote The Chronicles of Narnia, and in his second book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan, so spoiler alert, <laughs> Aslan was slaughtered by the white witch. So here's a simple question. Who killed Aslan? Right? So the obvious answer is the white witch did. She killed him. And she did so willingly. She did so in accord with her nature. She was completely free to do whatever she wanted. And in the book, she did it willingly and freely. She's guilty, right? But the same question can be answered in a different way. Who killed Aslan? C.S. Lewis did. Why? Because he wrote the book. He created all the characters in the book. He, you could say Lewis was working all things according to the counsel of his will in the Chronicles of Narnia, right? And yet, Lewis wasn't suddenly a murderer or guilty of a crime for writing a story where someone is killed or murdered willingly and freely. And this is how now, and then when, when the illustration starts applying to God, then our minds just pop because God's story is the kind of story where everything happens. Imagine Lewis writing himself into the story and say, hi, I'm C.S. Lewis. I wrote, I created you. I created you. I created. Oh, wait, you created the, us and the story. And so everything that happens in the story is because of your counsel and your will. Yes. And I wrote that. That's also part of the story, by the way. <laughs> But that's what Jesus did. 
God himself came into the story. He became a man. He walked among us. That we might know him, the author of everything. So I think that's helpful. How both could be true. God plans, God has a counsel, he is ordaining all things according to the counsel of his will. And at the very same time, we are completely free to do whatever we want to do. And we are responsible for that. So don't ever use that as an excuse to sin, to be irresponsible, because God will judge you for that. So fear God. Fear God and don't do that. But trust Him. And my best counsel to you, if you're still struggling with this, if you hear this and your heart is still struggling for how could God do this, then wait for the rest of the story. The story isn't done yet. Okay? We need every word of the book. We need every chapter of the story. Imagine if you were reading, reading the Chronicles of Narnia and you see Aslan being killed. Like, what a, what a horrible writer. And you close the book. It's like, I'm done. This guy is crazy. <laughs> hey, but you haven't even read the ending yet. Like, you don't know. Come on, you have to, read. You have to keep on reading. But many people do that with God, right? They're like, they just seen the story now. And they're like, I'm done. Wait. You have to wait for the rest of the story. Even for your story. He's not done with you yet. It's like, how do you know? Well, we're talking about him now, right? At least he wanted you to have this conversation. So if you struggle, look to God and his wisdom and his faithfulness and specifically look at the cross. The cross remains the key to understanding how these various layers of elements work together in a beautiful harmony that is beyond our understanding. But personally, this should expand your soul to worship God, not to reject Him. This should expand your soul to embrace Him as He is, as He's presented to us in the Bible. Look at the cross. Which leads us to the third observation. God's sovereignty is always for our good, the good of His people. That's why I began the servant to say, don't get lost into the debates and into the arguments because the main point is not the arguments. It's not the differences we have. It is his sovereignty, him working out all things is placed underneath our inheritance. It is the pillar that supports us when we doubting whether God will bring anything good out of out my life or anything good out of this chaos. It is for your good. It is for your confidence. It is for your hope. It is for your absolute security. If you lose the bottom half of Ephesians 1 verse 11, you lose your confidence in the top half. You suddenly then start clinging to your own works and your own ability to keep yourself instead of resting and throwing yourself upon God's grace and His sovereignty for you. So don't reject this sweet doctrine. Don't reject it. It is meant to give you assurance. Peace and hope. Go deep into God's sovereignty. And that's why Romans 8.28 is so precious to us. Because we believe that in this part of the story, God is still active. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Here's the last observation we want to make in closing. God's sovereignty is for God's glory. It's for our good, and it's for His glory. 
Notice that in verse 12. So just the next verse, just after verse 11, it says, why does God do this? Why does he just lavish us with an amazing inheritance, working all things according to the counsel of his will so that all things work together for our good? Why would he do that? In verse 12, he gives us the reason. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. That God might get glory. That is the ultimate reason why he created everything. To glorify himself. God's sovereignty is for you. It is not about you. Okay? And yet, even in that, when it says we are for the praise of his glory, it is still for our good. Because who does the praising? We do. Right? By making all things for his glory, it is we who get the joy so that we will praise him for that. So it's as if God says, I'm going to use my sovereignty to make you so happy in me, so amazingly, infinitely, ever-increasingly happy and joyful in me, that all you will do is to be able to praise me. And that is good news. That's why I agree with that famous statement from John Piper, right? The most famous, everybody knows it, you can quote it to me. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him beloved you can trust this god you can put all of your eggs into this basket you can you can throw yourself completely onto him hope in him hope in his promises he never fails he never can fail because he is sovereign and the greatest evidence that you can trust him is to look at the very hands of his son the same hands that is ruling the world with his sovereign might has holes in them because he hung on a tree for you that same hand that commands the seas that commands the wind and they obey was nailed to a cross to pay for your infinite guilt your infinite sin your your pride that is infinite infinitely worthy of an eternity in hell he paid for it in full. Again, you might say, but how do I know if I am part of God's plan to be saved? How do I even know if I'm part of the story where I get saved? Well, I want to say the same thing I said to, said earlier. Is, well, where are you now? You're in church, right? You're listening to a sermon, <laughs> okay? You could say at least God wants you to be here right now and hear the good news that if you would repent and if you trust in Jesus, he will save you. He will forgive you. So come. His invitation is open for all. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Just come as you are. Not come with your sacrifice, come with your works, come with your gifts. Come as you. He doesn't want those things. He wants you. He wants your heart. I love this statement I read in the week, but it says, Jesus is a better savior than you are a sinner. And there is more grace in God than there is sin in you. So come. Will you come right now? Will you throw yourself onto the mercy of the King of Kings? the one who loves you, the one who's died for you,
you can come. So come. Amen. Let's let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, you, your word often surprises us and challenges us and confronts us. We thank you, Lord, that as we study this text and look at it, we see that your word also encourages us and gives us true hope. A hope not based on fantasy, or, but on reality and the fact that you are God and even in this messy and chaotic world, even in the midst of all the sin and all the suffering, Lord, your hand is over it all. For you work all things according to the counsel of your will. And that's why, Lord, we can have utter hope and absolute security that we will have our inheritance, which is you. Whom have we in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that we desire besides you, Lord. Lord, we want you. We want to be with you. So, Father, draw us to yourself, and I pray that we would truly know you as you are and submit our hearts to you and walk in sweet obedience to your commands, for you are good. We pray this in Jesus' name.